0: Examination into the moral decline of America. Psalm thirty-three, twelve says this: "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord." Proverbs fourteen, thirty-four adds this thought: "Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people." And those two verses really summarize the moral disaster that we're experiencing in our country today. And uh, the bottom line is that we have forgotten the Lord. There's no question about it. There's no way you can get around it. And our sin and immorality and uh, all that goes on in our culture is causing our downfall and corruption because sin certainly is a reproach to any nation. The question that we'll examine is one that I think should be on the, uh, the minds of every one of us that has gone through this series, and that is a very simple one. And that is, is it too late for America? When you consider our moral posture and the things that have taken place, you've got to ask yourself the question, is it too late or is there any hope for the future? Recently, we had uh, Steve Farrar, who is the author of the best-selling books, uh, Standing Tall and Point Man. He was here, he spoke here at Calvary Church, Santa Ana, and he went on record as saying he believes that it is too late. And in many cases, I think the, uh, the facts may well indeed back up what he's saying. If you think about what's going on in our culture, and in many respects, if you think about the fact that maybe we have gone too far in our ability to change our attitudes, our ability to change our opinions and our beliefs and our lifestyles. Sometimes it seems almost impossible as far as we've gone that there's any hope for us to turn it around. If you think about divorce and abortion and adultery and homosexuality and pornography, sexual disease, murder, rape, violence, alcoholism, drug abuse and the promotion of gambling, all these things are a very strong indictment against the country who has coined on, its, who has its, on the coins of our nation, we've got in God we trust you know and if you think about our pledge of allegiance that includes the words one nation under god maybe maybe he's right you know maybe we've gone too far maybe it's quite possible that we push finally have pushed god beyond the point of his patience with us and uh, according to examples in the bible god's judgment against nations is usually brought about by by other nations who conquer her and it's typically preceded by godless leadership and uh, that's obvious as we consider the moral and righteous character of God that sometimes, you know what, God just gets sick of all of it. When uh, Richard Nixon passed away not too long ago, I had read an excerpt of one of the quotes that I want to share with you. Billy Graham in his eulogy quoted an old saying when he said this, a tree is best measured when it is laid down. One man said four more ex-presidents are in their senior years and today a young man sits in the Oval Office. A time will come when each will be measured not by the headlines of the day but by the only historian that matters. The same judgment will be applied to the rich and to the poor, to the great and the common and as America seems to stagger toward an abyss, it is a sobering thought indeed. Yet throughout the history of the world we also have on record, particularly the history of the nation of Israel, we see numerous examples of times when they seemingly have pushed God to the brink of his patience with them and yet at the last moment the eleventh hour they have repented of what they were doing they have asked for forgiveness and God has forgiven them and they had moved forward into a great spiritual revival so in this final session I want to address this question of is it too late for those of us who live in the United States of America and I want to do it by taking a look at the history of the nation of Israel because it's a fascinating one and in it lie many admonitions for us. Uh, just a quick history for, to, uh, to get you up to speed on where we're going. After the United Kingdom of, of Israel was divided, after, after Saul and David and Solomon, the Kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There were ten tribes that were, going, were to the north and it was known as the nation of Israel. There were two tribes that were to the south. They were Judah and Benjamin and they became known as the nation of Judah. And at this particular time, the nation of Israel, the, 12, the ten tribes to the north, had no one in a leadership position that was godly whatsoever. Throughout the Old Testament, we read accounts of every king that ruled the nation of Israel, the ten tribes to the north, were evil and did exceedingly wicked in the sight of God. Yet in Judah, the southern tribes, we notice that there are kings that were good and there were kings that were bad. And uh, some were raised up, some were taken down, but there was a mixture. There was good kings, there was bad kings one king in particular but then again that what we need to recognize too is that God brought about destruction for both of those nations they had pushed God to the limit and uh, the northern kingdom was captured by Assyria and they were captured in 722 BC the southern kingdom finally fell under King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, in Babylon in 586 BC and the particular chapter of scripture that we'll look at today has to do with the southern kingdom of Judah and why God had brought them to a point of judgment there was a king whose name was Manasseh he took over at the age of 12 and he was a wicked king and he, he ruled for 55 years and he had a son whose name was Amon and he was just as bad as he was he only ruled for two but he did exceedingly wicked in the sight of God after their reign took over a young man whose name was King Hosiah. and King Josiah was 8 years old when he took the throne he ruled for 31 years and the Bible says that he did right before God Everything that he did pleased God, but there's an important note that has to be brought out at this point, and if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 23, and we'll pick up this account in verse 23. And I think that some of us will be surprised as we see what happens here. King Hosiah did good in the sight of God. It says in verse twenty-four of chapter twenty-three of Second Kings, we read this. Moreover, Hosea removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book of Helciah, the priest found in the house of the Lord. And before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might. According to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah, because of the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple which I said, My name shall be there. It's important to note a couple of things as we look at God's wrath and His judgment because here we notice that there was something very special about this young man named Hosea he did everything that was right according to God he removed the evil and the wickedness of the society that had preceded him and kings Manasseh and Ammon and yet there's something that we notice about Hosea He he was a man that had a heart for God all of his heart all of his soul all of his strength Every ounce of energy in his body was dedicated to doing the things that were right according to God. And he followed the law to the letter. If God said it, he believed it, and he made sure that he took action upon it. Which is good for Hosea, and it was good for the nation, but there was one little side note that's important to notice, and that is this. It says in verse 27, However, or nevertheless... See, nevertheless, it did not matter to God at that point though it was going to be well for Hosea and it would be well for the people, but the reality of all it is is that God got to the point where He said, I am going to judge you and I am going to do it. Nevertheless, however, and that's critical for us to understand as we look at the judgment of God, and we need to recognize why God judged the nation of Judah because there are some parallels that are so strikingly obvious to me, and I think they will be to you, that we need to look at this and identify it, because there were five reasons that God judged them, five reasons that God points out as we'll look at a particular passage, and what we need to do is look at what Manasseh did when he was king of Judah what were the things that were going on what were the things that were happening in that culture in that society at the time and what did they do that got God so upset to the point where he said you know what it doesn't matter now you've gone past the point of no return i am still going to enact my wrath and judgment against you Boy, i tell you what this is going to be eye-opening for a lot of us because as i studied this and put it together and see what the bible says about this it's shocking sometimes to some of us in our culture and you'll see why in a moment we're going to take a look at five reasons that God judged the nation of Judah and there are five reasons that I believe that God will judge us in the United States of America Because God hasn't changed, his moral laws are the same, his character is the same, there's nothing different about God then, and there's nothing different about him today. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the things that were abominations to him that brought about the destruction of Judah are the same abominations to God today that will bring about our destruction as well. They're simple, but if you've got your Bibles, turn back a couple of chapters is chapter 21, and let's look at verses 1 through 16, and we'll identify five reasons that Judah was judged by God. Chapter 21 of 2 Kings, verses 1 through 16. We read this about the reign of Manasseh, the evil king of uh, Judah. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name for he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord and he made his son pass through the fire practice witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists he did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking God to anger then he set the carved image of Asphora that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon in this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel I will put my name forever and I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave their fathers, if only they observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and he also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other besides his sin with which he had made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. There are five reasons in this passage that God judged the nation of Judah, and we're going to take them one at a time, and I hope you don't miss them, because the parallels are too obvious to me, and I think they will be to you. Number one, the first reason that they, they were judged by God was because they had forsaken the Lord. The Bible says that they had forsaken the Lord. In 2 Kings 21, 20 through 22, we read this, That Speaking of Ammon, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord just as his father had done. He walked in all the ways of his father. He worshipped the idols his father had worshipped. He bowed down to them and he forsook the Lord, the God of his fathers, and he did not walk in the way of the Lord. The first indictment against Judah that we cannot miss is that they had forsaken as a nation, they had forsaken the Lord their God. They had turned their back on God. They had tried to eliminate His authority in their life, and they walked away from Him. In 2 Kings 22, 16 and 17, we see the same thing. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book of the king of Judah that has been read, because they have forsaken me. They've burned incense to other gods. they provoked me to anger by all the idols of their hands that they have made. My anger will burn against this place, and it will not be quenched they have turned their back on me they have forgotten who i am now we as a nation have certainly forsaken the lord we have tried consistently and persistently to remove god out of our thinking we have removed Him out of our politics we have taken god and prayer out of our classrooms we have given in to the persistence of groups like the aclu and we're now in the process of removing the ten commandments from all of the courthouses across our country and yet we remove nativity scenes from public buildings we have replaced God in our classrooms with the teaching of evolution as if somehow evolution is fact and and these pursuits my friends as we look at the history of the nation of Judah that led to their downfall will cost us also very dearly. I ran across the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission guidelines that were presented recently and this will will go into effect if it passes for businesses that have more than 15 full-time employees some of the highlights or lowlights as they were are this you can no longer if you work in a company of 15 or more people you can no longer wear a cross around your neck wrist or anything any openly visible part of your body You cannot wear a yarmulke, which is a Jewish tradition that covers their heads. Orthodox Jews wear them seven days a week. You will not be able to display a picture of Jesus on an office desk or a wall. You will not wear a t-shirt, hat, or any other clothing that has any kind of religious symbol emblazoned on it or phrasing of any sort. You will not be able to display a Bible or other religious book on your desk or anywhere that's openly visible to anyone who would come into your office that it may offend. You will no longer as a company host Christmas, Hanukkah, Thanksgiving, or Easter celebrations, parties, or picnics, or any other event that has any focus on Christ, God, or religious connotation. As we go through it, you'll you'll see that you cannot witness obviously the gospel sharing your faith, you will not be able to speak to fellow employees about religion, there will no be, not be any nativity dis- scenes displayed, uh, you will not be allowed to invite a, a colleague, an employee to te- synagogue, church or a temple or any other place of worship, there will no longer be prayer breakfasts in any cities across the country, you will not be able to have a conversation about religion or religious groups, uh, you will no longer be able to serve pork or only beef at a company 4th of July picnic, You cannot tell a joke. You will not give an employee a birthday card, holiday card, get well card, greeting card or plaque which includes any type of religious reference. You will no longer pray in your workplace. You will no longer host a Bible study on company premises. You will no longer have a uniform or company uniform or apparel that has any type of religious significance whatsoever. You will not be able to put a little fish sign on any of your advertisements in the yellow pages or in the newspapers. Madeline Murray O'Hare's organization, American Atheists, has issued a press release about the proposed guidelines. It includes this statement, Religion is, or ought to be, a private matter. Even with 8 hours of employment per day, religious people still have 16 hours of time each day to perform religious obligations and are therefore under no real restriction. Activities related to religion of any employee should be anathema in any places of employment, government, or private. The statement concludes the right to freedom from religion must be guarded by this regulatory agency, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Well, folks, God won't put up with it. We may roll over. We may play dead. But I'll tell you what, through the the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, God continually warned the people about the day that they would be judged when they forsake the Lord and they turn from him. Forsaking the Lord violates the greatest commandment, which is that we would have no other gods before Him. And if you stop and think about loving God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength, as King Hosiah did, what a tragedy it is in a country that gets to the point where now we have to protect from freedom from religion. God says that I will judge the nation that forsakes the Lord. Number two as we look at why God judged Manasseh and he judged the nation of Judah was because they followed occultic practices and satanic methods if you look and notice what it says in 2nd Kings here chapter 21 verse 6 we read speaking of Manasseh he sacrificed his own son in the fire he practiced sorcery and divination and consulted mediums and spiritists he did much evil in the eyes of the Lord he provoked God to anger the Bible teaches that King Manasseh Practice used, and consulted with occultists. He was into astrology and spiritists and mediums and all sorts of occultic practices. He took his own son and he offered up to a false god by burning him to death. The Bible says that it provoked the Lord to anger, and if you recall from our, our session last week, those who practiced such things according to the Bible were worthy of death according to the law. Today we've got New Age material that's at the top of bestseller book lists. In, in major bookstores across the country. we got lists with the New Age Movement creating a monster of occultic practices and beliefs. We hear of so-called beyond death or near-death experiences, white light and warmth, people that seek out channelers to get in touch with spirit beings. We see psychic hotlines and infomercials. And all of these things are just new names for an old pagan practice and God still finds such things to be an abomination to God and it's worthy of His wrath and it's worthy of judgment. There's another little tidbit that I want to throw out here, and it's called religious tolerance. See, what's happening is, is what Manasseh did was he tolerated the false religions of the people of the nations that had surrounded Israel. He said, well, you know what? Who are we to say that we're right? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna to be tolerant and open to everybody's belief and everybody's God. No matter what kind of God it is and no matter what you believe, we need to be open to all of it because after all, America is a melting pot of the world. And so we're gonna be open to and tolerate every type of religion that there is. Because there can't just be one truth. There must be multiple truths. If there's truth at all in a world of moral relativism, so there probably isn't any truth anyway. So how can we be right and you be wrong? And yet we've got religions that are in this country that are in direct opposition to one another. They violate one another, and yet we're to be tolerant of one another as if there isn't a right answer. Jesus says that I am the way, I am the truth, and there is no other truth. There's only one way to get to heaven, and it's through me. There's only one truth. There's only one God. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made it clear throughout His word when He said, Know this, O Israel, and you better remember it. There is only one God, for I am the Lord your God. The greatest commandment, number one, is, And you will have no other gods before me. Religious tolerance that allows us to set aside truth for the sake of accommodation is not pleasing to God at all because what we're doing is we're allowing deceit and error to creep into our culture to the point where those who do not believe in the god of isaac abraham and jacob those who do not put their faith and trust in jesus christ as a provision for their sins the bible says that they will be lost for all of eternity and what we've got to do as christian people is step aside and say we'll tolerate that we'll allow you to go to hell we won't say anything to you because we don't want to offend you and we certainly don't want to get fined and imprisoned for it so you just believe whatever it is that you want to believe but the problem Problem was, when you tolerate or allow evil or or lies and deception to creep into a society, you begin to become just like they are. God says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You will be just like them. That was the indictment against Judah. They began to do everything that God told them not to do. Why? All in the name of religious tolerance. We're going to allow you to do what you want to do. And you know what? We'll even show you we're good sports. We'll start to do some of the things ourselves. God says, you don't be deceived by any of that, because God will judge us for it. There's no way you can get around it. Number three, as we take a look at what Manasseh did, 2 Kings 21.16 says this, Moreover, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, besides the sin that he had caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 2nd Kings 24, 3 and 4 says, Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. I hope that you are gaining a new appreciation and understanding of God. Because we cannot as individuals or collectively as a nation Flaunt sin in the face of God and expect Him to forgive and forget when we get good and ready to ask for His forgiveness. When we decide we will sin no more and ask God for forgiveness, though the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive it, but you've got to understand something about the moral character of God. Don't be deceived. What you sow, you shall also reap. You cannot flaunt sin in the face of God and think you're going to get away with it what this is teaching all of us is that there is a price to be paid for our sin and rebellion before God God said yeah you can confess your sin and I'll forgive you but you know what sin always enacts judgment of God you're gonna pay a price and what he said was because of the shedding of innocent blood I'm unwilling to forgive you I'm not going to forgive you you're going to be judged for it the shedding of innocent blood I hope that you don't miss the parallel here but over the last twenty to thirty years in our country we have murdered 25 million unborn children all in the name of pro-choice or whatever it is. You as a woman can kill your own child but if somebody else injures or harms you we'll still hold them guilty of manslaughter for the death of your unborn child. We've got to be able to confront the, the, the illogical and unreasonable arguments of our culture for those who don't believe in the Bible or don't understand it we've got to be able to say does that make any sense to you our family is babysitting we've got a, a couple that plays on the, on the Rams that had to go out of town and, uh, and they're they had twin daughters and they were born and they were under one pound when they were born we had them stay with us the last couple of days they're seven months old now and as I held them and as we held them and as our family looked at them and we began to understand There is no way in the world that anybody could tell me that that person was not a child, that that person was not a human being, that that person was not made in the image and created in the image and likeness of God, that that one-pound baby that fit in the palm of, of, of her dad's hand when she was born was not created by God. You can't tell me that. There's no one that could tell me that. And as you look at what the God has to say about the shedding of innocent blood, God will not tolerate it. And we should not either. This is unbelievable when you think about it. You can't help but think about the Holocaust that's occurring not only in our country, but in the world. An article in the LA Times yesterday said an estimated 25 million abortions are performed annually. Annually. And in many countries where contraceptives are not widely available, a woman may undergo the procedure seven or eight times. Is there there forgiveness to the person who makes a mistake and and, and commits an act of abortion? Absolutely. And we can't lose sight of that. Please don't lose sight of what I'm saying. But we need to recognize it collectively. As a nation that supports that type of atrocity and holocaust, that God is looking upon that and he's saying it's an abomination to me and you better do something about it and you better stop it because if I'm not at the point where you push me past my patience I may be shortly and all of you will be affected by it we need to understand that we need to recognize the character of God I think a lot of us have a real identity crisis when it comes to understanding who God is which by the way September 18th a new series that will start will be Knowing God that will focus on the attributes of God. We need to have a better and clearer picture of who God is because it will affect the way that we live our lives. Number four, they were also guilty of fulfilling sexual desires outside of marriage. 2 Kings 21 9 says, But the people didn't listen, and Manasseh led them astray. And the New American Standard said that, that Manasseh seduced them into doing the things that the rest of the nations around them were doing. That he led them astray so they did more evil in the nations that the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. He's saying, here's Manasseh, and they're, do- and they're-, they're committing all forms of sexual immorality, the nation of Israel, God's people. They were, they were worse than all the non-believing nations around them. They were, they were committing acts that even godless nations weren't doing. And sometimes I wonder as Christians if we develop a mindset that says, we can do anything that we want to do because we can ask for forgiveness and God will forgive us. Romans 6, the whole argument that the Romans had was that, you know, we can continue to sin because then we can experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And I can do whatever I want to do. I had one gal come up to me last week and said, do you have any tapes or anything available that I can give to a young man who just became a Christian because he's struggling with having sex outside of marriage? And he's saying, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that you can't do that. And as she shared that with him, he said, well, you know, can you share some passages or verses or whatever? And she didn't have any off the top of her head, but said, I'll get that information, but I know the Bible teaches that. And you know what his final line was? Well, I guess I'll just have to come to my own conclusions in that area. Excuse me. Yeah, you will come to your own conclusions, but it's not changing the truth. You can continue to do whatever it is that you want to do, but God isn't changing what truth is. If he says it's sin, it's sin, and if he says you'll be judged for sin, you'll be judged for sin, and there'll be consequences for it. It's not like you can decide which ones you're going to obey and which ones you aren't going to obey. And sometimes as Christians, we get into this mindset that we can do whatever we want to do because we've been forgiven by God, and we can just ask for forgiveness again. And guess what? There's no price to pay. It's great. It's great to be a Christian. Great to know I'm going to heaven, and great to know I can do anything I want to do, and that God will forgive me anytime I ask for forgiveness. And it's also foolishness to have that kind of a mindset. Pay day one day says that he also tore down, in Second Kings, 20, Kings 23, 7, he also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes which were in the temple of the Lord and where women did weaving for Ashforah. What he's saying was, here's an example where they were committing homosexual acts in the temple of God. They encouraged prostitution. They encouraged homosexuality. They encouraged sexual behavior. Whatever floats your boat. You know, whatever makes you happy. Because who are we to judge? Who are we to tell you what's right? Who are we to tell you what's wrong? You do whatever you want to do. We'll be tolerant. We'll be open-minded. Hey, we are the world. We are the people. Let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya. You know, whatever it is. Now, you see what I'm saying? This is exactly the mentality that we have in our nation today, that we no longer have absolute truth. Whatever is relative morally to you, and that's okay with you, as long as you don't hurt me, as long as you don't step over the line and somehow or another uh, influence me or, 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 or upset me in some way, then you do whatever you want to do that's nuts that's wrong and God will judge us for it we have to be a voice in the wilderness we have to be light here on earth we've got to be salt that's our purpose that's our job that's the reason we're here we've got to be those who God uses to restrain evil in society we've got to be visible before the world that we live in and we've got to be able to say this is wrong before Almighty God that God is God and he does have absolute truth and these things are wrong before God. And the last reason that we'll be judged is for failing to respond to God's warnings. God is patient. God warns us over and over again. Second Chronicles is the last book in the chronological order of the, of the Hebrew Bible. In this particular passage, it records the destruction of Drew, Judah by Babylon. In Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 16, we read this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place but they mocked God's messengers they despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy you see that God is patient God is long-suffering God tolerates many things in our life that sometimes frankly that we don't even tolerate with one another God is long-suffering and he said that I continually sent messengers to you warning you over and over again about the things that you were doing and you know what you did? You mocked them, you laughed at them and in fact what Manasseh did according to Jewish tradition was he took the prophet Isaiah and he put him in a log and he sawed his body in two. He said you're going to cramp our style by telling us what we're doing is wrong? Well I've got a little trick for you. And he stuck him in a hollowed out log and he sawed his body in two. And you can read about it in Hebrews chapter 11. God sent warning messengers to them and and they rejected his messages and they told him to hit the road. We're going to do what we want to do. My concern is, is that we as the people of God are the messengers of God that hold his truth. My concern is not that we will be rejected by our culture because we certainly will. But my concern is that we as messengers of God are not fulfilling our responsibility as messengers of God. That's my concern, that we're not opening our mouths in this culture that we live in that's quickly falling apart to tell them what the problem is. We're not identifying it for everybody that's around us that doesn't understand what's going on around us. We need to be the messengers of God that uphold the truth of God. That's our responsibility. And if you want to feel indicted about it, let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you had a conversation with anybody who wasn't a Christian regarding the moral decline of our culture and could, in some way, educate them as to what the problem was? That's really what it comes back to. So if you think about it, needless to say, this is a very sobering message, and I truly believe if there's any hope for America, it'll be found in the repentance of God's people because the greatest tragedy of this moral decline is that it's affected the church this televangelism stuff and all of that is nothing compared to the sexual immorality that we find that has taken place in the church today and when we see pastor after pastor and leader after leader fall in this area it's nothing compared to what's actually being taken place in the the seats of the people that sit there and listen to their teaching it's a reflection of what's going on in our culture We're accommodating sin that God still calls his sin, and we're allowing it to creep into our own personal lives as Christians, saying, I can do what I want to do, and it doesn't really make any difference. This is great to live in a society like this. And God says, no, it's not. That as a believer, we have a responsibility to God to live a life that's holy and blameless before God. We have a responsibility when we're confronted with sin in our life to confess it and to repent from it and to make it right before God. That we're to be clean and holy vessels used of God to restrain evil in our society. The reason our society is going to hell, so to speak, is because the church isn't doing what we're here to do. And I take as much blame for that as anybody else. What are we doing to make a difference and an impact in the society in which we live? What are you doing to change the minds and the hearts of people around you? What's taking place in our culture? How, what are we doing? Who are we voting for? What initiatives are we allowing to pass? What referendums do we just walk away from and don't really consider what the consequences are? What are we doing? Where's our voice that's going to be heard? You see, if there's any hope for America, the, 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 the admonition that God gave to Solomon... When they had rebuilt and he finished dedicating the temple, the Lord appeared to him and he admonished him about his obedience and loyalty to God. And God said, if you are not loyal, I will predict judgment for your people, but I'm going to throw out something to you that you need to consider. And we'll put it all together on this. God told Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.14, He said, if there's going to be any hope, there's going to be any hope for my people, Then my my people, he said to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will hear their land. Contrary to the media propaganda in our country today regarding how fundamental Christians are destroying the nation of America, the reality of all of it is simply this. If America will be redeemed, it'll be directly a result of the repentance of God's people in this country if America has a chance to somehow another escape the judgment of God it'll be a direct result of God's people following four steps of repentance number one if my people see God's indictment is always to his people the world is dead in their sins The indictment from God is to those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven by God. We've been born again into the family of God. This indictment applies specifically to you and I who know Christ as our Lord and Savior. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, the first step is submission to God. We need to be humble before God. We need to submit to God. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Take that laughter and that grinning and the joking and turn it to mourning and lamenting and weeping for what's going on in our country. Humble yourselves before God and he will lift you up for God is still opposed to the proud but he gives greater grace to the humble. If there is any hope for America, it will be at the hands of God's people who finally realize how serious this issue is and will begin to lament and mourn for what's happening in our nation. That we'll be submissive to God and to his word and will be obedient when he confronts us with it. Number two, it says not only should we humble ourselves but we need to pray. We need to pray. Ask yourself the question, when was the last time I prayed for my country? When was the last time I prayed for the moral decline of our nation? When was the last time I got down on my knees and was humble before God and lamented and mourned over the state of what's taking place around me? When was the last time I prayed? Rather than just complain about it and moan about it and say there's nothing we can do about it, God says pray about it. Because the fervent prayers of a righteous man will accomplish much. When was the last time you prayed? God made this real clear to me. I was out running. There's a, there's a place near my house where, where I run and we live up kind of in the hills near Anaheim Hills in Orange and, and there's a there's street that I can run down that overlooks and I can see from all the way from Newport all the way out to Long Beach and all the way toward, toward the, further to the west. And as I was running it, and I was thinking about this message and thinking about what God was saying, He said, look out there. When was the last time, Chuck, you looked out there and you were broken just collectively for what's going on in your community? and in your city, and in your neighborhood? When was the last time you just stopped and asked me, hey, can you do something about this? When was the last time you were concerned enough to pray for those who are under the indictment of God? Man, and and, you know, and, and I run by there, and I go by there all the time, and you know what I look at sometimes? I look at, God, what a great sunset, Lord, what a beautiful, you know, look at the ocean on a clear day. Isn't this wonderful? Your creation is awesome. But but it was like for the first time he opened my eyes to say, Yeah, but what about all those people? Jesus stood above the city of Jerusalem and he mourned and he lamented and he wept for them and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if if you'd have just come to me, I wanted to gather you up just like a mother hen gathers little chicks. I just wanted to take you under my wings and protect you and love you. If you'd have just come to me. And he mourned for what he saw. When was the last time that you prayed? for people around you. He says, if we'll humble ourselves and pray, and you know what? And seek God's face. Not consulting others, the experts, the scientists, counselors that don't lead us to the Lord or don't lead us to the Word of God. But when was the last time you lacked wisdom and you sought the counsel of God? Seek my face. Turn to me. When you have a problem, turn to me for the answer of, is it right or wrong to have sex outside of marriage? Is all these things right? Should I be doing these things? When was the last time you turned to me and consulted me and consulted my word for a problem that you're having in business or finance or a moral issue that's going on in your life? Don't turn anywhere else, but you seek my face. And then you know what? After you seek my face and after I show you the truth and after I convict you in your heart and in your spirit, then you've got a responsibility of turning from your wicked ways. Are you willing to be obedient when God exposes evil in your life? When he exposes sin in your heart, are you willing to turn and say, I'm going to forsake that, I'm going to walk from it, I'm going to confess it, I'm going to do what's right before God. I don't care how pleasurable it is, I don't care what other people think. What bothers me about this whole series that we did, and I hear conversations take place in groups of people, is that some of us don't even have any sense of urgency or inkling of understanding of how serious all these things are. We say, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about teaching evolution in school? What's the big deal about taking Prayer out of classrooms, we can still pray. What's a big deal about moral relativism? What's a big deal about divorce and remarriage? What's a big deal if I want to work and have somebody else take care of my kids so I can make more money to buy more things and have more material things? What's a big deal about that? That's my business, it's none of your business. What's a big deal about pornography and videos and magazines and literature? What's a big deal about homosexuality and the homosexual movement? What's a big deal about somebody cheating on their spouse if it makes them happy? What's a big deal about all these things? What's a big deal about having a drink? What's a big deal about drinking alcohol? What's a big deal about using drugs recreationally? Of course, not to any limit or any extreme. What's a big deal about all these things? What's a big deal about going to Vegas and slot machines and gambling and blackjack? What's a big deal about all these things? You know what the big deal is about all of them? God calls it all sin, and it's a big deal to Him. And if the Spirit of God is living within you, it should be a big deal to you too. Maybe we need to turn the joy and the laughter into lamenting and mourning. For we too have succumbed to the cultural pressures of our day and we become just like everybody around us. Because we don't want to be different. We want to be accepted and loved by everybody. But woe to you when men say good about you at the expense of God saying good, well done, my good and faithful servant. What's the big deal? It is a big deal. And I hope that we begin to understand how big a deal it really is because it brought about the destruction of Judah and they were carried away into Babylon and and it was a big deal to them. And they were probably thinking the whole time they were marching in chains, I don't know what the big deal was. Well, I can kind of get a feel for it. A wonderful message of hope through all of this. One of the most amazing amazing things about the forgiveness of God is that as evil as King Manasseh was, and as everything that he did brought about the destruction of Judah and the judgment of God, do you know what's an amazing story? That Manasseh, in the midst of all of it, found salvation in the God of Israel. That Manasseh as an individual, in 2 Chronicles 33, 12, 13, we read this, When Manasseh was in affliction, he implored the Lord as God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and he prayed to him, and he received his entreaty, he heard his supplication, and he brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Is God good or what? Is that awesome or what? The most amazing thing through all of this is that Manasseh found salvation in the Lord God, even though what he did directly led to the judgment of God on the nation of Israel. I don't know if it's too late for America. I have no idea. But I do know this, that in the midst of all of this, is that we as individuals can find salvation in God. You've got to ask yourself the question, if you die today, you know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you'd go to heaven and be in the presence of the Lord. See, because if you don't, God is saying that salvation is at your door and it's knocking today. The Bible says that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The Philippian jailer said, Sirs, what must we do to be saved before God? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You see, as we go through this this history of the people of God and their rebellion before God, God still loves individuals. God still salvages people out of the midst of the rebel. And yet God is still God, and He still accomplishes His purposes. He is still holy. He is still righteous. He still judges sin, and yet He does not lose sight of the sinner in light of His judgment and His moral character. The question as you go through this, you've got to ask, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, I, know with, I just know that there's three groups of people that are represented in this audience. The first one is those who don't know if they died today, whether they go to heaven or not. You think, well, I'm I'm being good. I'm doing good stuff. I don't know if it's good enough, but I hope it puts me over the top. Well, let me tell you something. There's only one way to be right with God, and that's by accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for your sin in your life. There's only one way. There's a second group, and that's those who have come to know Christ that have tolerated for a long time the things that are going on in our culture. And the Bible says to you and I, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins. But if means we must agree with God that what He's saying is true. We must repent and turn from it. We must be willing to give it up. For if there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. And we need to understand that. We've got to be willing to turn around. And the third group, I would hope, is every one of us who want to be used by God in our culture to try to, in any way possible, Save off the judgment of God against the United States of America. You're in one of those three categories and maybe the last two. And I'm going to challenge you to consider what was said. I'm going to challenge you to examine your own hearts to see what God has to say for you. Because, hey, if the light isn't doing what it's supposed to do and the salt's not salty anymore, then there's no good purpose for it still to be here in this earth. And we need to understand that. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to get together. To look at the judgment of Judah and realize that we too are guilty of so many of the same things, if not all of them. God, I just pray for those that are here that do not know you in a personal way, that don't have a clue that if they died today, what would happen to them, that you would reveal yourself and make yourself very real to them. God, help them to see that it's sin that will keep them from heaven and that the only provision for sin you've made it yourself when you sent your son into this world to die for that sin. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The Bible tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead that we will be saved. God, I just pray that those who don't know you would do that today. Father, I just pray for all of us that have come to know you can call ourselves a child of God based on the authority of your word that we would no longer tolerate sin in our life that we would confess it before you that we would repent from it that we would walk from it and that we would become clean vessels that could make some type of difference in the world that we live in. God, we're just grateful that you tell us that if your people are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways. We just praise you that you tell us that you hear us from heaven, that you forgive us our sin, and that you'll forgive our land. God, help us to see that, to sense that, and to be used by you to be instruments of righteousness in our world. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.